Let's open our Bibles once again to Genesis chapter number 16 this evening. Genesis chapter number 16. We preached this morning out of the first six verses, and uh, we preached on the tempter's song and what to do when facing temptation, what temptation's going to look like. I want to shift gears a little bit tonight, if the Lord will allow us to, and I want us to focus on Hagar this evening. And then this morning's message, we carried the thought that Hagar was the object, uh, the resource of Abraham's temptation. And certainly she was and is in those first six verses. But as sort of the, you know, I, I'm a child of, of, of my, my generation and age, and, and I grew up in a generation where television was just a, a part of life. And I, I don't know why this is. It probably would not be the case a hundred years ago. But when I read narrative portions of Scripture, not just a Scripture, when I read anything narrative, I sort of envision it in my mind. And maybe people always did that. I don't know. But it's almost like you see the camera shift away from Abraham, away from Sarah, and follow the story of this uh, disheartened, uh, deserted, cast-out, exiled young woman that is with child as she flees from the face of her mistress and goes into the wilderness. And we learn a valuable, touching, comforting, profound truth about God and His care and His perceptiveness in these passages of Scripture. So I want us to read, we'll begin where we left off, in verse number 6, and then we'll read down to verse number 14. Now, if you were here this morning, you know about the first five verses, you know what all has transpired. But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand, to do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. The angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. He will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand Against him he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. She called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me. We'll stop there and pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray you'd use it tonight to comfort and encourage our hearts, Lord, to uh, embolden us in our walk with you, and Lord, to enliven our spiritual condition and, and our testimony. And Lord, may we, through the word tonight, draw closer unto thee, and may we learn more of you, and we'll be sure to give you the praise, honor, and glory. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here we find this poor, cast-out, pitiful, helpless, abandoned woman. We do not know how old Hagar was. We know she must have been younger and considerably younger than Sarah at this time in uh, Sarah's life. Sarah is 75. Uh, I don't know how old Hagar was, but if Hagar is a handmaid, it would not be unthinkable to imagine that she could have been in her late teens, early 20s even. No doubt, though, one way or the other, we're talking about a young woman. 
she has no husband, at least she doesn't have one that's caring for her at the time. Uh, she is with child. Of course, that's always been a dangerous thing to some degree, but even more so at this time in human history and without anyone around to be able to be a help, to, uh, able to uh, be a support for her. She has no idea where she's going. She has no idea what she's doing. She is literally just running away from the problems that she has in life. And so she flees from the face of Sarah, her mistress, and she goes on the way to shore, which is on the way to Egypt. As we said this morning, I think probably that was the direction she was headed. I don't know if she knew whether she'd make it or not, but she was just going the only way she knew to go. She was going towards Egypt. And she sits down beside a fountain, and all of a sudden, she hears a voice. The same voice that had pierced through the pagan darkness and spoken to Abraham is now piercing through the darkness of her circumstances and is speaking to her. After this exchange, and we'll say much about it this evening, she walks away with one singular impression about the voice that she heard and the God to whom it belongs. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Now let me pause there and say this. She don't know anything about who God is. Now I don't know how much she had heard from Abraham and Sarah But I would just propose this to you, that probably the things that Abraham and Sarah had said about God didn't mean a lot to her at this point in life. Uh, Listen, there's a lot of folks where the best witness they have in their life is a backslidden Christian. And that was her situation. I mean, how often have you heard people say, well, I used to go to church, but then this happened, the way they acted, the way they behaved. Or how often have you talked to someone and say, oh, a Christian, yeah, I had a, my mother was a Christian, or I had a friend that was a Christian, or I have a sibling that's a Christian, but they acted this way or they acted that way, and that's why I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Well, now, you and I know that's not a valid excuse. We know it's not going to stand at the great white throne judgment, but that does not mean it's not truly going through their heart and head. We better be careful how we live. I was preaching this morning in Sunday school. We was talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their refusal to bow before the golden image there in Babylon. And uh, listen, they, once they had decided to stand, there wasn't no going back. If they had just bowed with everyone else, then nobody would have noticed who they were. It, after they had stood, them being willing to go through the furnace, that was a great testimony for the Lord. and God used it powerfully. But what would have happened if after having stood, they had bowed? They would have done more damage in bowing after standing than they would have had they never stood in the first place. The same thing's true about you and I, man. We walk around telling people we're a Christian. That means something. And we better make sure it does mean something. We better make sure we walk around telling people, yeah, I go to church, yeah, I know the Lord, yeah, I'm a Christian. We better recognize that they're going to judge our God by our walk and by our conduct. Hagar probably didn't think much about God at this point. Probably whoever the God of Abraham and Sarah was, she didn't have much interest in. But when God speaks to her, she says this, verse 13, Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? In other words, what she's saying is this, There's a lot I don't know and understand about who God is. But I know that God knows who I am. Let me tell you something. There's going to be times, seasons in your life 
that you're going to go through things, maybe not in the particularities of it, like what Hagar is going through, but you're going to find yourself in the same uh, sense and in the same condition and in the same uh, situation of hopelessness that she found herself in. And in those moments, it's going to be hard to understand what God's doing. I've said this several times here lately, particularly on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, but listen, there's there's more time that I don't understand what God's doing in my life than there is that I do understand what God's doing in my life. Uh, there's more time when I just have to trust His heart because I can't see His hand and I can't understand His plan than there is that I've got God figured out. And in those moments when you don't know what to think, in those moments when you feel like you don't know where to turn or what to do, you, like Hagar, can rest in this fact. There may be a lot of things you don't understand about what God's doing in your life. There may be, we could say this proverbially speaking, you may not be able to find God in what's going on, but rest assured that God knows exactly where you are at. I want you to notice four thoughts tonight, four things that God sees. And I believe these four truths sing together like a quartet, this one strain to Hagar that God knew her. She did not know much about him. She did not know him personally, but God knew about her. And I want you to notice these four thoughts with me. Look at verse number seven. The Bible says this, and the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to shore. Let me say number one tonight that even when we can't see God, even when we can't understand Him, when we can't perceive Him, when we think He ain't within a million miles of us, God sees our person when we are deserted. As she sat down beside that wilderness, I promise you that one thought crossed through her mind. I am alone. The very nature of the word wilderness denotes a barren place. A place where nothing resides, or at least no no semblance of civilization resides. In other words, she wasn't sitting down at the Ramada Inn. She wasn't sitting at a Shoney surrounded by a bunch of people. She went as far away from people as she could get, and she sat down and thought to herself, I am alone, no one knows where I am, no one understands what I am going through, no one can see the things that I am feeling. And there in that place of desertedness is where God found her. I find two interesting thoughts in this vein of truth. Number one, I want you to notice the finding. It's funny how the Bible says it, because the Bible always says it just right. It says the angel of the Lord found her. Now, when we think of that term found, we use it in two connotations. We use it either to denote the discovery of something, or we use it to denote the position of something. Uh, for instance, if we were to say, I walked in and uh, I had lost my keys, I turned over a sweater or a hat or whatever it might be, and I found my keys. What we're saying is, I did not know where it was at, but I discovered its location. I don't believe this is what God was saying when He said He found her. You say, how do you know, preacher? Because that kind of finding requires an absence of knowledge in the first place. In other words, if that's what the Bible was saying, it would imply that God hadn't known where she was at and God went looking for her. I got news for you. God don't have to look for us to know where we're at. God knows all things. But then there's another way we might use it. For instance, if I was to say, I walked into the room and found my child drawing on the wall with a crayon. 
I'm not saying I didn't know he was in there. I'm saying I came in and I noticed, or uh, I don't want to use the word discovered here, I observed his position and his activity. It's in this connotation that the Bible says that he found her. She thought she was lost. Later on, God asked her a question, said, where'd you come from, where you're going? And she can only answer one part of that question. She can tell where she came from, and she can tell what she's running from, but she can't tell where she's going. She don't have a clue where she's going. She was lost, but God wasn't lost. God knew exactly where she was at. What God did do, however, was He exposed her position and made clear to her that he knew exactly where she was. He knew what she was going through. He knew what she was doing. Oftentimes, when we have been abandoned by people, and you're going to go through uh, experiences in life where you feel abandoned by people, where you feel as though folks that you thought was going to be with you, that you thought was going to help you and encourage you and support you, folks that swore up and down they'd never leave you, that they'd never forsake you, that they'd never turn their back on you, that they'd never betray you, will do the very thing that they swore they never would do. And in those situations, there is a great temptation in feeling as though we have been left alone. And there is great danger in this as well. This is part of the devil's tactics. Uh, Listen, one of the things I wish I'd get it in people's heads, isolation. Isolation is one of the great tools and resources of the devil. He tries to... And you see this in so many places in Scripture, and I'll mention a few here in a second... But you even see this in the analogy that the Bible gives concerning what Satan is. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And the picture is of a lion stalking a herd. And he knows he ain't going to get everyone in that herd, but he's seeking whom he may devour. And what he'll try to do is pick one that's a little slow, pick one that's a little sick, maybe pick one that's a little stupid. Somebody say amen to that. But he'll try to get one and cut it from the herd. Because he knows if he can cut it from the herd, he's got it. Man, that's what the devil tries to do in our lives. He tries to isolate us. He tries to separate us from God's people, from the people that love us, that support us, uh, that want to see us live for the Lord and do the right thing. He tries to get us away from those people because he knows that we're weaker in that position. And he tries to get us alone. You find this in the life of Elijah. Elijah was willing to stand upon the mountaintop all alone because he had an understanding, a a fierce and firm conviction that God was standing with him. And he stood against the whole nation of Israel and said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. How long halt you between two opinions? Choose you this day whom you'll serve. If, If the Lord be God, then serve Him. But if Baal, then serve Him. And we see that image of Elijah standing upon that mountaintop, stalwart against the uh, hedonism and paganism of the day. But as soon as he comes off of that mountain, goes back to Jezreel, he hears word that there has been a price put on his head uh, by Jezebel. He flees into the wilderness. And this time he's alone. Uh, in fact, I would say this, he was less alone then than he was on the mountaintop. When he's out in the wilderness, he's got a servant with him. But then he tells that servant to stay put. And he goes further in the wilderness by himself. Why? He wanted to tell himself he was alone. The devil had gotten his ear and in his mind and said, Elijah, you're the only one left. You can't do it. So how do you know that, preacher? Because that's what he told God. He told God, I, I've been very jealous for thy sake and for Jerusalem and, and, and uh, I've been very, uh, I've been very jealous for thy name's sake. And he says that I and I alone am left of all the prophets. He got, he, sitting there in the middle of a pity party, he got convinced that there wasn't nobody else and that he was all alone. God shows up to remind him, Elijah, You're not alone. 
I'm here with you. I'm present with you. And then God even goes a step further and says, and beyond that, Elijah, I got 700 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I got other folks living for the Lord, doing the right thing. The devil seeks to isolate us. And the reason is because we find comfort and strength in the company of God's people. But even a step beyond that, we could say that in the presence of the Lord and in the consciousness of that presence, we find the comfort and strength that we need to live for the Lord. He found her by the wilderness. Notice the finding, but notice too the fountain. Nothing happens by coincidence. And this is doubly true in the Word of God. The Bible says the angel of the Lord found her where? By a fountain of water in the wilderness. By the fountain in the way to shore. You've heard me say this a hundred times, I bet. But in the Word of God, water is used symbolically of two things predominantly. There are a few other instances. For instance, there are times that water is used reflective of the masses of the people. For instance, when the Bible talks about the sea and the ocean, things like that, oftentimes that's symbolic of the, of the mass multitude of people in the world. But, but typically, uh, the water is used in two connotations. One, it's used to represent the Word of God. And whenever it is used to cleanse something, to wash something, it is often typifying the Word of God. We're cleansed through the Word. Christ said, I made you clean through the Word that I've spoken unto you. Paul talked about the washing of the Word in the Pauline epistles. And then the other way, when it's used as nourishment to drink, it is uh, symbolic of the Spirit of God. Just as Christ told the woman at the well that you drink the water that I'll give you, it'll be in you, a well of water springing up in life everlasting. Now, she's sitting beside a fountain. You no doubt could have used this water for a lot of things, but a fountain in the middle of a wilderness would have predominantly been used for drinking. And it's a reminder to you and I just exactly how the Lord maintains and ministers His presence in our lives. And He does so through the Spirit of God. If you're a born-again believer, you may feel alone, but the fact is you're never alone. You're never alone. I heard one preacher say this, they could lock me in a padded room with no one else around and I still wouldn't be alone. The Spirit of God resides within you. If you're saved by God's grace, you're indwelt by His Spirit. And the fact is, even when we feel like nobody's around, even when we feel like nobody's with us, God is still with us. He sees where we're at and He ministers His presence in the midst of that isolation. Look at verses 8 and 9. The Bible says this, And he said, you say, well, who's he? He is the angel of the Lord. In other words, Jesus Christ. Angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always without fail what we call a theophany or a Christophany, a a pre-Bethlehem incarnation or appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of questions you could ask me about that that I couldn't answer. Uh, but there's enough Bible, and it's clear enough and enough passages to note that it's not merely an angel like Gabriel or Michael are angels, but it's distinct. This is the Son of God. And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Can I say this? You can run from your problems, but that don't change who you are. I want to say that again. You can run from your problems, but that don't change who you are. She tried to run away from her mistress, Sarah. But when God speaks to her, He says, Hagar. He doesn't say Hagar the Egyptian. He doesn't say Hagar uh, the one that is with child. He doesn't say Hagar the mother of Ishmael. He says, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Oftentimes we start getting in our head that a change of location is going to make a change in situation. But the fact is, there are some things that's going to follow us. We're going to have to stand, turn around, stand our ground and deal with it. Because it don't matter where we run to those things are not going to go away. 
She tried to want, run away from her problems. God reminds her, you're still Sarah's maid. Hagar, Sarah's maid. And then he asks her a question. Whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress. Think with me for a moment about the question. And let me just have this thought in your mind. God sees our person when we're deserted. Number two, God sees our path when we're disoriented. God never asked a a, a single question because He needed the answer. You've heard me say before that all of God's questions are rhetorical. Because an omniscient being can only ask rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that you don't ask because you need the answer. You ask it because the person you're asking needs the answer. Or the people standing around need need the answer. For instance, a lot of times, my son will try to pull something over on me. He's that age now where he he he's he sees a little further than the tip of his nose and he'll try to pull something over on me. I'll look at him, I'll say, you think I'm stupid? He's already learned that you're not supposed to answer that. <laughs> learned it the hard way. It's a rhetorical question. I don't need him to tell me. I know I am. I'm not asking because I need the knowledge. I'm asking because I want him to ponder and to meditate the question that's being asked. I want him to answer it. And God never asks a question because he needs information. He asks it because he wants you and I, the person asked and the people observing, which in Scripture includes all of us, to consider the question. So what's the question? Hagar, where are you coming from and where are you headed to? Oftentimes, when we feel like we don't know where to go, we get paralyzed in the present. When we don't know how to move forward, we stop and stare at where we are at. And we don't take stock of what our options are. But God's question is a little deeper than that. What He's asking her is, why did you come running and where do you think you're going? And the fact is, she really didn't have a good answer. She answers the first question best as she can. Verse 9, or uh, verse number 8 at the end, she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. Here's the reality. She had no clue where she was going. She wasn't running to something. She was running from something. I'd remind you again that the most dangerous thing in the world you can be doing is running from something. You see it all the time, man. The kids love to just run and play and everything. Uh, when they're here at the church, and I see them and they're running and running and running. You rarely see a kid trip when they're running towards something. When they get to chasing each other and one of them's running away, that's when they run like face first into a wall. Because they're not paying attention to where they're going. They're just paying attention to what they're running from. Oftentimes we allow our path to be defined by what's behind us instead of what's in front of us. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Uh, in other words, we're running from our problems. And that's what she was doing. But really what God was trying to get her to understand and trying to get her to acknowledge and affirm is that she didn't have a clue what she was doing. Listen, if you're in a disoriented condition in life, some of y'all say, I live there, preacher. (laughs) But I mean spiritually disoriented. And there's times it's like that, man. There's times when life just sort of, sort of slips out from under you and you get going sideways and you don't know what to do. The best thing to do, first off, is to stop and recognize that you're in a disoriented position. We often, out of pride, want to press forward and make decisions to prove that we're not disoriented. That's folly. And that's a recipe for making life-wrecking decisions by trying to press forward and pretend as though we have control over things instead of stopping and just owning up to the Lord that we don't have a clue what we're doing. 
and that we need His wisdom, we need His direction. This question was asked to elicit an honest confession from her. That she was running from her problems, that she had no clue where she was at or where she was headed to, that she was in a mess. And yet the Lord responds in verse 9 by saying this, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. There's a lot of things I would say about this, but I want you to notice not only the question, but the command. The command is, Hagar, go home. Go home. There's a few reasons for this. One, because as we said a moment ago, your problems, many of them will follow you no matter where you're at. You're going to have to stand your ground and face them where you are. And you'll be in a lot better position if you'll stand your ground and face them where you are than if you run out and get out on the middle of a, of a limb that's about to break and then have to turn around and, and, and fight the tiger off of the limb. But then I think there is another truth here, which is that she had no clue where to go or what to do or where she even was. Uh, she was like a termite in a yo-yo, but God knew exactly what she needed to do. In our most disoriented moments of life, God has not been thrown off balance one iota. He knows exactly what we need to do. I would also say this, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we're just sort of walking through this passage and picking up truths as we loosely follow a train of thought. But oftentimes, God's answer is not what we want to hear. Say, so how do you know that she didn't want to hear that? Well, the fact that she had ran away tells me she didn't want to hear this. God told her to go and do the exact thing she did not want to do. And yet that was the path that God had appointed for her. God would through this process, and He does not leave her without giving her a promise, but God would through this process prosper her. And she would become, her, her lineage or her descendants would become a great nation. But it took first going back and facing the very thing that she had fled away from. If she had continued in the wilderness... In disobedience, she probably would have died there. And oftentimes when we get disoriented, we want to rely on our own wisdom. It's so dangerous. Uh, Solomon in the book of Proverbs tells us to lean not unto our own understanding. I think sometimes when we think of rebellion or disobedience, we think of it in, like this shaking our fist at God. Like us saying, I know what God wants, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want because it doesn't matter to me because I'm smarter and I'm better. But you know what a lot of us do? We just lean on our own understanding. We don't seek after His wisdom. We don't seek after His counsel. Solomon said, Lean not unto thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge Him. He shall direct thy paths. The answer was not what she wanted to hear, but it was the right answer. And sometimes we're disoriented because we don't want to face what is the truth, what is the path. She probably knew before the question was even asked that that's what she ought to do but she would not come to terms with it because she didn't want to face it. Even when we're disoriented, God knows our path. Skip down to verse 11 and 12. I've got a reason for why. We're going to go back and pick up verse 10. But I want you to look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Let me say that, even when we don't know what to do, we're disoriented. Even then, God sees our path when we're disoriented. Number three, God sees our pain when we're discouraged. At the heart of this story is one thorny problem that Hagar has. 
she's bearing the child of a man that doesn't love her. Her home is now in pieces. She can't go back because the man that the child belongs to wants nothing to do with her. And the wife of the man to whom the child belongs, sounds like Jerry Springer, don't it? Can't stand her. She's got a problem. She had a good reason for leaving, if you want my opinion. Though the answer was for her to go back. And so she runs and she leaves and she really does not know what to do. And she probably anticipates dying in the wilderness. The reason I believe that is because some 13 years later, she would be driven again from the face of Abraham and Sarah, but this time for good. But when she left this time, she didn't just flee. She was cast out, sent out by Abraham in chapter 21. But before she goes, Abraham puts a bottle of water on her shoulder and gives her some provision. And she goes down this same path. And I suspect she was probably looking for this same fountain and probably looking for this same God. She wanders through the wilderness and cannot find Him or the fountain. And she begins to perish. She begins to thirst to death. So she takes the child and casts him up under a bush and goes off a little distance and sit down and weep, cry, and says, I can't watch my own child die. Now, if there was that much risk of her dying 13 years later, when now here she's not with child and Ishmael is 13 years old and he's able to sort of uh, live and help and contribute and if nothing else, at least walk under his own power, then what were the chances of her making it here? What were the chances of her making it with child out in this same wilderness alone? Her problem was she couldn't go back because she didn't have nothing to go back to in her mind. She couldn't go forward because she had nothing to go forward towards in her mind. She had a real problem. And the Bible uses the term affliction. Let me say two things. One, God knew her problems. God says one thing she already knows, and then two things she doesn't know. God says, Behold, thou art with child. She knew that already. But then God says, And shalt bear a son. She didn't know that. And shalt call his name Ishmael. She didn't know that she was going to call him Ishmael. God knew more about her problems than she knew about her problems. And can I remind you that whatever you're facing in life, God knows more about it than you do. He knows the good. He knows the bad. He knows the ugly of it. We oftentimes, part of this pity party thing that we go through is is we tell ourselves that no one understands what we're going through. I've been told that, man, I couldn't tell you how many times as a pastor. Well, pastor, you just don't understand. And listen, I just try to be honest with people. That very well may be true. There's things I've been through that you ain't got a clue about. And there's things you've been through that I don't have a clue about. And if we're being honest, you probably don't want to get to know the things I've been through any better than I want to get to know the things you've been through. I don't want to have to walk in your shoes and experience those things to be able to empathize, nor do you want to do that with me. But let us never forget that we do have one that was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And we do have one. That deals with what we've been through, uh, what he has been through in the past. But then what about what he's going through in the present that is tempted in all points like as, or that is touched, the Hebrews writer says, with the feelings of our infirmities. In other words, God knows what we've been through. God knows exactly what it's like. And God knows exactly what we're feeling right now. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I understand what you're going through. You might be surprised how many people understand what you're going through. You might look around and say, I don't nobody know. 
But if you were to know the truth of it, there might be more people that know what you're going through than you would give them credit for. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Because the God that sits upon the circle of the earth, that reigns over the universe, He knows exactly what you're experiencing. He knows more about your problems than you know about your problems. God knew about her problems, but then number two, God knew about her pain. The Lord hath heard thy affliction. I'm going to be honest. Every once in a while, there's a verse in the Bible that just messes up my theology. Tore up from the floor up. Don't have a clue what to do with it. And this is sort of one of them. Hagar is, for all practical intents and purposes, a lost woman. We have no reason to believe or understand why God would ever hear anything that Hagar had to say. She is an Egyptian. She is a pagan. She's going to, by the way, continue to some degree in her paganism, uh, or at least in her propensity towards Egypt. She's not going to all of a sudden become a, a grade-A Christian when this entire venture is over. And yet this poor, broken, bankrupt, abandoned woman in her pain cries out. By the way, it doesn't say the Lord heard her prayers. The Lord heard her affliction. She just cries out. But the ear of God is attuned to the suffering of His creation. And so God knows exactly the pain she's experiencing. In other words, God doesn't just know why you're in the position you're in. God knows what it feels like to be in the position that you're in. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is me standing back here and saying, I hate you're going through that. <laughs> one, of the, one of my favorite stories I ever heard, uh, Brian McBride was preaching. He was talking about driving down the road. He just signed, kind of said this off, you know, off the cuff. He looked over, somebody was pulled over by police, and he uh, just off the cuff said, Man, I'm sorry it's you, but I'm glad it ain't me, <laughs> man. And I think about that now every time I see somebody pulled over by the police. I think, Man, I'm sorry it's you, but I'm glad it ain't me. <laughs> Sympathy is sort of like that. I hate you're going through that way over there. Empathy's a little different. Empathy is someone that's walked through it, that can stand in that problem with you and say to you, I know how it feels to be here. I can't, it's not just I can imagine it. I don't have to imagine it. I know it because I've been there and I've felt that. That's the reason it's so important that he was tempted in all points like as we are. And that's why it's so important that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Part of the way you get mileage out of self-pity is by telling yourself no one understands. The remedy to that is recognizing that supernaturally speaking, you don't have to understand everything about it, you just have to believe what the Bible says about it, that the pain that you're feeling resonates and reverberates in the throne room of God. I've told this story before, but I heard a guy telling a story about being in a music shop one time. And it was a real high-end music shop. It was a place that they sold harps. And they had these big thirty, forty thousand $40,000 harps in this place. And uh, the fellow was talking to the owner of the music shop. And the owner said, let me show you something fascinating. He walked over and he plucked a string on one of those big harps. And when he did, there was another harp all the way across the shop that started to reverberate with that sound. And the guy said, man, that's crazy. I've never seen that. What's going on there? And he said, these two harps are so in tune with each other that if you pluck a string over here, the sound waves reverberate and will shake and reverberate the string over there. In other words, you pluck a string here and it plays a note there. That's sort of how the Lord is with us. The devil's playing show tunes on your heartstrings 
And you think, man, don't, nobody know what I'm going through. But the heart of God knows what you're going through. He's heard your affliction. He said, preacher, I don't even know if I've prayed the right way. It doesn't say he heard your prayers. He does hear them. But it says something even more simple than that. He hears your affliction. Even when we don't know what we ought to pray, the Spirit of God itself maketh intercession for us with groanings and utterings which cannot be understood. Not, again, I'm going to mess up my theology here. You ready? We'll go on the journey together. I believe that one of the things Paul's talking about there is when we pray, the Spirit of God takes our prayers and makes them fit for the ears of God. And he fixes all the things, kind of like auto-tune. If you've ever heard these say, listen, when you hear in a little while, you're going to go home, you're going to watch the Super Bowl. You ain't said nothing about it because you're trying to be real spiritual. But you're going to go home, you're going to do that. And they'll have some joker at the halftime that'll get up and, and probably make a speech about, uh, you know, political stuff and then sing or something like that. And, and you'll listen, you'll think, man, how does he do that? How does he sing? How is he on pitch like that? He ain't. That's how. He's got a mountain of electronics behind him that are taking all of those frequencies before they ever get to my dumb ears or yours and changes it and auto-tunes that thing to straighten it out before it ever comes out of the speakers. It's synthetic. It's fake. It's doctored. And I've always sort of believed, and I I do believe this still, that the Spirit of God sort of auto-tunes our prayers because we don't know what we ought to pray. But I would just propose this to you. It doesn't say that He maketh intercession with us. It says He maketh intercession for us. But Charlie, I sort, of, I sort of believe this. I do believe when I pray and it ain't right that the Spirit of God takes it and makes it right. But it also sort of makes me think there's times when I'm not even praying, but He's praying for me. Times when I ain't even said nothing about it to God. But He's heard my affliction. He knew what my pain was. And he listened, not just to my prayers, but to my pain. I'll show you one final thing, and I'm done tonight. Then you can go watch the Super Bowl. I guess, I don't know. I don't watch professional football. The only time I kneel is tie my shoes, amen? And I wear loafers. <laughs> no, I don't watch Super Bowl. I'd rather watch college football. At least there they pretend like they're not paying them, amen? <laughs> Look at verse 10. We skipped over this a moment ago. It was intentional. I want you to notice what the Lord Jesus says to her. The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now, I would say at this moment, in her heart and mind, it was very much in doubt whether this child would ever be born or not. How was she going to have the care she needed? Who was going to deliver that baby? Who was going, who was going to doctor that baby and doctor her? Women that have been through, you know, childbirth's a traumatic thing. How was she going to, she probably didn't even know she was going to have that baby. But God says, I don't just see a baby, I see a nation. Let me say this, that when, I'll go through all of them. God sees our person when we're deserted. When we think no one sees us, God sees us. God sees our path when we're disoriented. When we don't have a clue where we're at or where we're headed, God knows the right way to go. God sees our pain when we're discouraged. When we haven't even prayed about it, God's already heard our affliction. But finally tonight, God sees our potential when we're desolate. God mentions first off all she had. All she had was this seed. 
Now, you and I understand the dispensational. I think you do. I hope you do. If not, I'll explain it to you, the dispensational implications of that term. For a couple of reasons. One, women don't have seed. Men have seed. And so each time that the Bible talks about seed, there's always a supernatural implication behind that thing. For instance, in Genesis chapter number 3, when it talks about the seed of the woman bruised the head of the serpent, it's not talking about Cain. That was the mistake that Eve made when she had Cain. She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She thought Cain was going to be the Messiah. And he, he was a rascal. It wasn't the first man, it was the second man. Right? You find three men there. You find the first man, Cain. He's of the earth. You find the second man, Abel. He's heavenly. He was a picture of the Lord Jesus. Then you find the new man. That's Seth. That's a picture of the believer. That is a product of the uh, uh, of the second man gaining victory over the first man. You get the new man, and that's Seth. But Eve had made that mistake. But God wasn't talking about Cain. God was talking about the Lord Jesus. Later on, in in the same area and context, God made a promise to Abraham that his seed would be a great and mighty nation. But he wasn't talking about Isaac. He was talking about the Lord Jesus once again. And he says, uh, Paul makes this distinction. By the way, you, you want to know why it's so important? You King James Bible? In the book of Galatians, an entire theological position hinges upon whether a word is plural or singular. One letter. Paul says, it's not unto seeds as of many that he made the promise, but unto seed as of one. People say, well, I don't know if it matters, if it's pretty close. Paul would say it matters. Whole theological principle hinges on that one letter, S, as it relates to this spiritual truth. What he's saying is this, that spiritually speaking, that through Abraham physically there would be an earthly people, there would be a great nation. But spiritually speaking, through Christ, through the seed, the son of promise, there'd be a heavenly nation, a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly people that would be born. Here in this passage, God uses the same term. But he's not talking here about a heavenly people. He's talking about another earthly group of people. And he's talking about the Ishmaelites. We'd know them later on as Canaanites. We'd, we'd know them uh, later on as, as Arabs today. Most of the Arab peoples are, not all of them, but most of them are descendants of Ishmael. And in this passage, I'm just reminded, God knows exactly how impoverished she is. Thy seed, that's all she had. God doesn't have on blinders about how desolate we are. Oftentimes we look at it and say, Preacher, I can't do anything for the Lord. I don't have talents. I don't have charisma. I don't have this. I don't have that. I've got this baggage. I've got these problems. I've got these things that I'm dealing with. And the reality is God does not dismiss any of that. God knows that. In fact, that is the very reason God would use you in the first place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians... That He has chosen the small things of this world, things that are base, things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. God points out all that she had, but I see in this passage that she also had all that she needed. Because God says, I will multiply thy seed. We often look at our life and we say, man, I, I could never do anything for the Lord. My life can never be what I would want it to be. We look at our present situation, and yet that very thing that we look at, that we say, this is all I've got, is the very thing that God looks at and says, with me, 
That's enough. I can do something with that. Like Philip said about the little lad that brings his lunch, says, all we have are these fish and these loaves. And the Lord Jesus said, oh, I didn't know you had fish and loaves. If it was given out of a sincere heart of sacrifice and gratitude and submission, that's all I need. Give me that fish. Give me those loaves. We often look at the resources that God has put at our disposal and the life that He has granted to us, and we say, that's all it is. And God looks and says, that's all I need. If you'll give it all to me, that's all I need. By the way, you know why I think the Lord Jesus could use that little lad's meal? When that little lad gave that meal to the Lord Jesus, he didn't know the Lord Jesus was going to break those bread and fish and feed 5,000 people. He had no way of knowing. The disciples didn't know. I don't think he intended to feed the multitude. I think he intended to feed the Master. I think he probably was saying to himself, hey, if nobody else on this hillside eats, Jesus at least ought to eat. He put Jesus first. He saw to Jesus' needs above all. He said, if I can just please Him, if I can just put Him in His proper place, if I can just worship and serve Him, then I'll be content. God said, that's what I need right there. Watch what I can do with somebody with a heart like that. We say, all I got is this seed. God says, that's all I need. If you'll give it to me. God says, I will multiply thy seed. Listen, there's a lot of things we can say, but I believe the Lord's done with me tonight. I just want to ask you this question. What is it in your life that you've been sitting around in the middle of the pit on the side of the road and saying, nobody understands, nobody sees, nobody knows what I'm going through? Can I remind you that God knows what you're going through? And you can stay there if you want, and nobody can pry you up out of there. But if you make up your mind that you want to go on and live for the Lord and find comfort in God's presence and knowledge and power, then God's sufficient for the need. What is it that you may be saying, Preacher, I can't do anything for the Lord. This is all I am. But God may be looking at you and saying, That's all I need. If you'll give your heart and life to me, I'll do great things through it.